Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the Bob phone from New York, he's our guest, musician, writer, and record producer, Lenny Kay. With your mercury mouth in the missionary times, and your eyes like smoke, and your prayers like rhymes, and your silver cross and your voice like chimes, oh, who do you think could bury you? With your pockets well protected at last and your streetcar visions, which you place on the grass, and your flesh like silk, and your face like glass, who could they get to carry you? Sad-eyed lady of the lowlands, where the sad-eyed prophets say that no man comes. My warehouse eyes, my Arabian drums, should I put them? By your gate or sad eyed lady, should I wait? Wow. <laughs> Pretty magical stuff. Um, why did you choose uh, those particular lyrics? Well, I have to say it's probably my favorite song in Bob Dylan's incredible canon. I just love the phraseology, I love the sense of development, I love the extensive lengths, and, and I love the heart and soul that's in that song. And also I remember taking LSD to it and <laughs> going on his journey when it came out. I, I just think it's one of the most beautiful songs ever written and uh, you know, a true tribute to surely one of the greatest songwriters ever. I used to take LSD and listen to all, you know, Jefferson Airplane and those guys. And I, I never really listened to Dylan and I should have. I'm gonna Dude, you still have time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know, because I was talking to Luke about as it happened, Sad Eyed Lady, and we both agree that we love it, but we still find it as baffling as we always did. It's just it's quite baffling still. But in a good way, isn't it? Because yeah, in I, a good I, way. I, it's never bothered me that I don't know what it means. Well, I think, you know, if you try to explicate Bob literally, you'll run yourself into circles. Mm. For me, Blonde on Blonde is my favorite Dylan album because it kind of represents as far out as he would go, you know, mm -hmm. that, that theory of the expanding universe. And then it begins to contract. And while in a lifetime of his uh, canon, there's so many great songs, you know, like a Rolling Stone, <laughs> all of the Infidels record. To me, that was where he took his art as far as it could go. And then he kind of moved backwards. He sort of retrenched, you know, realized that if he kept on going over that precipice, he would not come back. And so uh, I find that a very special record. I find the instrumental backing very sensitive. I find the sense of humor in that album quite amazing. And, uh, you know, it's still in my top 10 albums of all time. I so agree with that. I, th I think that there's something about that 1966 era Dylan, which is, you're, as you say, right to the edge of the precipice. And, and at some point he decided, you know, I'm not going to be Hank Williams at the back of a car. I'm not going to be Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm here for another half century plus, and I'm going to change direction and make this work somehow. And it's fascinating to me. I mean, sometimes you have to test your limits. I know with the uh, Patti Smith group in the 70s, 
our version of that would be the Radio Ethiopia album, where we took a sense of improvisation and kind of chaos as far as it could go. And almost immediately after that album came out uh, and the stage shows at that time, which were just crazy, Patty running through the audience, knocking over chairs, monitors flying off the stage. She fell off the stage during January of 1977. And there I feel like our music became more one of conciliation rather than mm. confrontation. Sometimes you got to see how far you can go and not, you know, again, fall over the edge. I, yeah. I believe that to me is the album where somebody goes as far as they can go. It's as crazy as it can be. The torrent of words, the, the sense of purpose and adventurism and experimentation. And then all of a sudden you realize, yeah, that's kind of as far as I need to go. Hmm. Now I can kind of come back. Uh, and again, Dylan also had his accident after that, where you start seeing physical, you know, realizations of how things have really gotten a little bit hard to handle. Funnily enough, it's been Glastonbury uh, this last weekend here. So I was catching up on some old Glastonbury's, which they've got for free on, on the BBC. And I watched the Patti Smith Group's 2015 Ah, Dig. yes, with the Dalai Lama. With our, the Dalai our, Lama, our, you know, and back Our up. guest guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> but also, that's, Patty was still, you, they didn't show it very well. Of course, you were there on stage with your guitar, so I don't know if you saw her, because you can see her just, there's a little cut where she she falls off the stage and, and she's sort of hanging on. Or, uh, you couldn't quite tell, but then when she comes back on, she says, you know, yeah, I fell off the fucking stage. <laughs> I fell on my ass. That's what she says. I fell on my ass, Glastonbury. <laughs> but well, I mean, did you? Rock and roll is a, is a yeah, high risk so uh, adventure, and uh, also you're at the mercy of uh, your stage set and your technology and all of the above. I think of the guitarist from Stone the Crows, who like you know got shocked to death on stage. Les Harvey. It's the risks you take, and uh, of course the rewards are, are even better, and sometimes you really have to push yourself as far as you can go just to know how far it is you can go. And the fact that Bob is still really just experimenting, you know, seeing who he might be, putting on, gotta say, some of the weirdest shows ever. <laughs> I saw one of his eight runs uh, his eight-day runs at the Beacon uh, two or three years ago. And, you know, it's, yeah, sometimes you get to recognize what song he's singing, but he's singing it with passion, and you have to respect him. The most recent thing I've seen him do, maybe you have too, is him singing Happy 80th Birthday to Brian Wilson. Oh, <laughs> so, so crazy. You know, first of all, that's the, one of the most recognizable songs in the world, which he somehow manages to make new. But he plays this kind of jazzy chord at the end, and there's a look on his face that says, as someone on Twitter, I think, said, yeah, I'm not sure if that works, but fuck it, I'm not doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he's, he's actually, hilarious. we've been making uh, humorous asides about the Christmas album backstage sometimes. Mm -hmm. We put on a random track and just listen to how he self-destructs these songs but i don't know i kind of think that's his charm and i have to say we were uh, opening them up in australia uh, at this point it's probably 20 years ago uh we went all the way around australia and new zealand with him and it was interesting because you know he could go out there and sing these songs with the right melody but what he does is that he says 
I'm not going to be chained hmm. by the way I sang a song once. I'm going to do it the way I feel, which is kind of daring, somewhat frustrating. But in the end, when a little spark of the original of uh, <laughs> Blown in the Wind or, you know, whatever comes on, there's a sense that, yeah, this is the oral transmission of folk song that has been going on for three, four hundred years at this point. And he's always cast himself in that role as a folk singer. And of course, that doesn't mean that he can't be folk rock or rock and roll or croon when I, his crooners, recent crooner uh, stage just cracks me up. But yeah, all music is there to be interpreted as you will, to be revisioned, to be re-understood. And I think he does that so he doesn't become a living jukebox, which of course, when you are on the road for 60 years or so, you can kind of go on autopilot. The trick is to make these songs that are so familiar, not just to your audience, but to yourself, continue to have life. And being a kind of obstreperous person, I think he likes challenging his audiences to find the song within his version of it that particular night. What I love about listening to you and reading your words and, and watching your numerous interviews and whenever you're talking about music, there are no barriers. You know, you can talk about the Ramones or the Velvet Underground or Rocket 88 or Elvis at Madison Square Garden in 1972. And it's all just music. There's no, Amen. there are no discernible barriers when you talk about it. And that's so great. I love all music. Uh, you know, uh, I've investigated over my life just about all of them looking for that key to really understand it as opposed to just acknowledging and giving respect. Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, the greats, you know, but I didn't really get why. I just understood their virtuosity. And then one day about, I don't know, 10 years ago, I'm listening to the radio and they play a cut by a pianist who worked with Charlie in 1940, when uh, Charlie went off the rails and was incarcerated at uh, Camarillo Mental Institution, there was a guy named Dodo Marmorosa, and he had a song called Botmatism. And I listened to it, and I thought, man, this is really great. And I started appreciating, not as a historical artifact, but as something exciting. And through that key, I was able to open the door into bebop hmm. to hear what Charlie was doing, what Dizzy Gillespie was doing, what Lucky Thompson was doing, all of these people, and to experience what it was like on West 47th Street in the 1940s, that exhilaration, that sense that we're making a punk rock music that's rendering swing music obsolete. And that sense of excitement can be found in any music. You just have to find the key or the great songs. It's like nuggets. When I put that together, I wasn't trying to make a garage rock compilation. I didn't even know what it was. Some of those songs were five years ago. I just thought they all kind of fit together. And when it got to over in Europe, where even though some of those songs were familiar here, they weren't familiar in Europe, people suddenly had a window into a certain genre. And when you have a window, then you just have to find your favorite songs. And that's what I like doing. Yeah, no, it's really inspiring to hear that. I love all music. I mean, yeah. to be honest, I'm all about hit radio. If I find a great song that is not in my demographic, I'll love it. Uh, there's a song out now called by a girl named Gail, G-A-Y-L-E, I think. It's called A-B-C-D-E-F-U. 
<laughs> I heard that and I thought, whoa, and it's a hilarious song. So I put it on my playlist and I'm, you know, I'm rocking out to it. I'm not parochial. I love metal music. I love classical music. I love Chopin. I love music. And uh, the more places you can experience this human way of understanding emotion, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And uh, I feel very privileged to be in the world of music. Well, speaking of uh, places, I'll just give a blatant plug for your book. Because <laughs> yeah, it's about baby. places. Uh, lightning striking, because it's about places like Cleveland, Memphis, Liverpool, and the years that lightning struck. And the reason I'm, uh, I'm mentioning it now is because, uh, of course, I'm, I'm fascinated by San Francisco in 67. I, I kind of... I've sort of pulled back from that because, like, none of my friends really are. But you wrote a whole chapter about it. Totally and transformative there. for me. Yeah. I, you know, I'm six years younger than you, so I, I wasn't, you know, old enough to go there. But I kind of got—I did get there eventually, but it was all over. But you saw and were there as an audience member for Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, Quicksilver, Messenger Service, and Big Brother before they cut their uh, yeah. their album. Uh, I loved what you said about Janice. I really love what you said about it at all. But you said something about you wanted to sort of kind of help her. She needs some loving. And I wanted to be your boyfriend. Yeah, well, <laughs> me, that, that's what I want. When I saw her, I thought, but, oh, no. Yeah, at least psychically. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I have to say, as a musician, and it caught me at just the right time. I was 20 years old. I had been in a band for a couple years. But it really caught me because this, that sense of possibility the same one that Patty talks about in Land, you know, that sea of possibility where all of a sudden this music opens itself out and you can really do anything. I mean, there's so much Grateful Dead and the Patty Smith group, you know, music, because they had no boundaries. When you move into that realm where it's sound upon sound, as free jazz has, as the very outer reaches of rock has, it kind of transcends genre. And what it just awakened in me is the sense of you could take this as far as you want to go in any direction. And uh, I, I love that. I mean, all of these scenes that I talk about, uh, San Francisco, uh, Detroit, the New York of 1975 or the London of 77, they all become somewhat cliched. It kind of, as you get distant from it, they become a stereotype. You know, when you think of punk, you think of kids pogoing and garbage bags, and you don't realize the sense of excitement that this music generated for people who were looking for a way in to the music to express themselves. And uh, to me, that's the moments when, quote, lightning strikes a scene. You know, if I end my book in Seattle in 1991, and there's another scene that became really overly defined when, if you deeply listen to not only Nirvana, but Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, or the Melvins, there's varieties of difference between them. And that's what I like to see. It's not just the definition, because to me, when things get defined, that's when they lose their sense of progression. You know, with Patty, even on the back of horses, we're beyond definition, beyond gender, beyond politics. Because as soon as you get a label attached to you, 
That's as far as you go. Mayo of the Red Crayola, that psychedelic group from uh, international artists in Texas in the 60s. On the back of it, they had this, for, uh, Mayo Thompson is quoted as saying, definitions define limit. And I've always believed that, especially for myself. Of course, I'm going to be associated with garage rock forever. You know, praise all the musical gods. But on the other hand, we all contain multitudes. And I'm capable of taking in all kinds of music and filtering through my personality and spitting it back out. I really do. I just believe that, you know, especially when punk, punk became very rigidly defined. You yeah. know, I remember playing with Jim Carroll in San Francisco one time. And I invited uh, the editor of uh, Maximum Rock and Roll, Tim Yohannan, who was a super, you know, hardcore punk, to come to the show. Hey, man, we had stage divers, and Jim is incredible and such a great performer, and the songs are played, you know, double time. And I said to Tim, I said, you know, what do you think? And he says, well, it's a little commercial. Well, I don't think that's a pejorative myself. <laughs> but, you know, we weren't like hardcore, rigid I believe that you always have to like allow yourself freedom of movement. Bob believes in that too. Mm. He's never wanted to be confined by a definition, whether it's protest singer, folk singer, folk rock. He's always tried to upend the barriers that people would like to place around him, sometimes successfully, sometimes just, uh, you know, out of peak. But you know, you have to do that as an artist or else you will be confined to your era. Yeah. And he doesn't mind being commercial either. In fact, hey, commercial means people are listening to mm, you. Yeah. I think it's in a weird way. It's not easy on any way. But if you want to construct a pop chant to appeal to, you know, millions of people, well, that's easy because there are kind of ways to do it. On the other hand, if you want to have a kind of avant-garde dissonant noise band well also there's a way to do that there's templates for that to me the best thing is to take a music which is unusual and radical and and idiosyncratic and have a lot of people listen to it you know i know that with patty you know we came from so far ultra that you know even the thought of having a rock and roll band was beyond our conception at the beginning. You know, it's a poet who goes off on improvisatory surreal voyages, a piano player who has a command of the keyboard so well, Richard Soul, that he doesn't have to show it off. And me, you know, a kind of rhythmic oriented guitar player. There's no way we could even figure out how we would make a record, but we knew that we had a sense of magnetism with the audience. In the same way, I have to say, an artist like Suzanne Vega, who I worked with in the mid 80s, you know, she had a very intimate style of singing that didn't seem to fit any of the ways in which record companies like to package and classify their music. And after a couple albums, she all of a sudden, she was able to be herself and reach a large audience. That, to me, is the great trick. If you can pull that off, you're good. How did that rigidity of punk sit with your peers? For example, I mean, you know, Horses is 1975. 
you were at Elvis's Madison Square Garden concerts three years earlier. There's that footage of Debbie Harry tearing up a picture of Elvis on stage. <laughs> Do people look at you and say, you, you can't like that? Well, I, you know, I don't really care. No, I mean, sure. you know, with, with Patty, we had as much of the Rolling Stones and Motown and John Coltrane and all these wacky influences. And, you know, I always thought of us as a transitional band. We might have had the energy and the sense of renewal that punk promised. But a lot of what we did was rooted in that 60s kind of improvisatory, expansive, see where something goes, have a starting point and don't know where you're going to wind up. Um, the exploration of music. And I mean, yeah, there's certain songs that we access the punk the way punks play, da, na, 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 na. Um, one of which we are not allowed to play anymore, which I understand. But the fact is, is that we, we've always resisted it. We wanted the freedom to have a field of noise, exploratory, beyond language, beyond anything but the sense of the moment being created. And also have a hit single, you know, sing because the night have an acoustic song that wears its heart on its sleeve. We wanted all of it because that's the only way you have enough room to maneuver. It's very important not to get defined. I don't think any of us wanted to be pulled out in one of those uh, PBS specials where, you know, here's, you know, <laughs> the folk protesters of the 60s or, you know, 70s punk rock. Whoa, it's the damned. Yeah. And I love that music. You know, when I see The Damned, I want to hear them do New Rose, just like uh, I know our audiences want to hear our semi-hits. But the fact is, is that you have to leave yourself creative room and not let other people tell you what your music should be. And we had a lot of that between uh, Horses and Radio Ethiopia. We got critically slammed for Radio Ethiopia because it wasn't Horses Sideways. Mm -hmm. But you do that and... By the next album, you're done. I believe that you always need new input and new ways of figuring yourself out. And uh, that's, of course, the uh, trick and the challenge. And, and because, you know, I just came back from, from Europe and we were playing to, at our own shows, they were filled four or five grand of people, you know, festivals. And I look out at the front row and I see girls the same age as they were in the 70s. Looking at Patty and understanding her as an inspiration and an icon, it's very great to transcend generations. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. I was thinking about this watching Paul McCartney said at Glastonbury, you know, the people sitting on, on people's shoulders singing along to all these songs. They, they were probably born in the 90s, maybe even this century. And I mean, I'm I'm 50, and the, you know, I was never alive when the Beatles were together. These these songs go on and they last, you know. And it's great to see them engage with a new generation, a new audience. Well, you know, I mean, songs are great no matter how you hear them. And the yeah. Beatles, I have to say, I think I even said in the book, they sound weirder as yeah. the years progress. <laughs> I mean, okay, they're like you know one step away from being a garage band in '66, and then they're like the you know their songs are so beyond time. And a great song will last in the same way that, say, songs from the American songbook of the 30s still resonate with people. 
and sometimes appear in different guises. I mean, take Blue Moon, for instance. You know, here's a song from the 30s that Richard Rogers wrote. And when the Marcells did their doo-wop version, he tried to stop it. He <laughs> thought, oh, this is desecration. I don't think he tried to stop it when it went to number one and yeah, those right. royalties poured in. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, a great song will transcend time, transcend arrangement. And sometimes, especially, say, Dylan's songs, they've been done so many times by other artists and sometimes refigured. I mean, for me, one of the most amazing moments was the first time I heard Mr. Tambourine Man by the Birds. I grew up in New Brunswick, New Jersey at that time, and uh, they had a folk music show, uh, which I was a, a steady listener to every Saturday at midnight. And so I'd listen, you know, because I was a folk music fan. And uh, all of a sudden, they have a, let, let's have a listener contest. And they play Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man, and then a song by the birds who I'd never heard of. And I listened to this transformation of Tambourine Man, and I thought, wow, that is amazing. And so I called in. I was one of the two people to vote for the birds <laughs> version. <laughs> but uh, I like when it is the true folk transmission, these songs that came over from England in the 16 and 1700s and, and found a home in the Appalachian Mountains and then became part of the folk process that Harry Smith dug up in the anthology of American folk music and became the bed for the folk revival, which to me, that's how music spreads. And I just love to watch its process. I mean, my book really is about process. These scenes which don't really, they're not coming together and say, hey, let's have a scene because then it's over. <laughs> there are these people coming together and they have a lot of things happening. Brian Eno's concept of senius, where it's not just the geniuses on stage, but the entire audience, the social times, the way everybody's dressing, what people are reacting against to, what the current mood is in this particular locale, and all of a sudden kind of coming together like cosmic dust forms a planet, you have a sense of mission and a sense of style and personality. And that, to, you know, to trace that, you know, whether it's Liverpool in 62 or Norway in 1993, one of my favorite offshoots in the book, <laughs> to see how these things happen, that's kind of what most interests me in the growth rings of rock and roll. Because really, once it's figured out, it's over. Then it becomes... You know, it's like Abraham Lincoln lying there. Now he belongs to the ages. I like those moments, just like in the Nuggets album. The original Nuggets album is not that garage rocky. Hmm. You know, it's not all fuzz tones and yowling lead singers. I mean, there's a lot of that, Farfisa, Oregon. But it's like people experimenting, not really knowing what they're doing, taking advantage of a sense of possibility. And looking backwards, I was able to define it. Now, of course, garage rock is such a trope that uh, I don't know if there's anything, you know, now there's garage rock revivals and revivals. But to me, I like it when things are just really blurry, when people are figuring it out, because that's where the excitement happens. I mean, talking about classic songs, Lenny, I've become a bit obsessed by Patti Smith's 12 album, which you played on huh. and 
co-produced. Yeah, because of it, well, because I'm an old 60s guy and about half of the songs are from the late 60s. There's uh, Are You Experienced, Helpless, Give Me Shelter, Within You, Without You, White Rabbit, Soul Kitchen, Midnight Rider. <laughs> and they're really interesting versions. I have to say, the first track is Are You Experienced, which is a song that I did listen to on LSD. And, and, and yeah. what, before I listened to it on LSD, in fact, it's what got me to, for me, it changed my life. Like somebody said to me, have you heard this album, Are You Experienced? No, I haven't. Get it and listen to it. And I yeah, And that really did change my life. But I love the version. And I, basically, I'm wondering how you chose or did Patty choose all the songs? Did you choose them with her? Was it a group thing? And why those songs? Because it's kind of, in a way, quite outrageous to redo White Rabbit and all those songs, Within You, Without You. How did that come to be? I'm, I'm really intrigued. I, I love know. A lot of so it was random. You know, we tried out a bunch of songs. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some Patty, I remember Everybody Wants to Rule the World. She was sitting in her coffee shop and uh, came on the radio and she thought, oh, it's a pretty interesting song. Hmm. Um, you know, some of them we always kind well, of There's changing toward. of the guards, of course, as well, which is, I knew really well just because it's such a brilliant version. I think actually I like it better than Dylan's version. Well, thank you. I mean, we do a lot of Dylan on this last tour. We uh, we opened up with uh, Wicked Messenger, which we did on our Gone Again album. And then uh, I think Patty and Jackson and Tony did a little version of uh, One Too Many Mornings. You know, I mean, he's very central in our universe, as is Jimi Hendrix. I mean, funny story about uh, that little uh, cut, the tracking of it. We're out in the studio, and it's, it's just about live. I don't think uh, we, we did any overdubs or anything like that on it. And when the guitar solo came on, I kind of kicked my wah-wah pedal on. And in kicking it on, I unplugged it. And I thought, <laughs> oh, fuck, you know. So I'm down there, you know, trying to... And you can hear us on it. Punk. And... Uh, I thought, oh, man, you know, so we finished the song, we go back and listen to it. And I thought, man, that sounds so cool. It's like Jimmy came down and gave me a new sound because we're recording it in Electric Lady. I'm, you know, almost in the same position he stood in when he recorded uh, Electric Ladyland. So uh, great, great moment in time. We always do tributes. Uh, me and the boys give Patty a break and we'll do some uh, couple oldies, a little medley. We have a Velvets medley. This tour, we did uh, Stone Free or uh, Helter Skelter. We did Helter Skelter for Paul's birthday. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, I got to uh, take a walk on uh, I Want to Be Your Dog, which is great to see the people just, you know, erupt and get excited. I mean, you know, it's a fun song. It's the tradition of rock and roll. I know when I hear a great song that I have affection for on the radio, I'll roll down that window, I'll stick my hand out, and I'll go, woohoo! You know, it's, it's a great thing, and uh, great song. Again, it's a great song. It starts with that. I, we all love the characters of rock and roll, but you got to have something to sing, and that, to me, is uh, how you judge. And, you know, especially with Bob, he's got a lot of very hooky songs. I mean, I remember hearing him for the first time when I was a kid, and that voice was so weird. But once you got accustomed to it, it kind of drew you in. And the songs were very hummable, 
it's one of the things that makes them great. It's not just like random chords and folks singing and steeped in tradition. The answer, my friends, is blowing in the wind. It's just like, yeah, you want to sing along. And, and when you sing along, that's the circle that you make the context with your audience. Yeah, I mean, going back to Sad-Eyed Lady, I remember the first time I did hear it, I thought, wow, he's, I've never heard his voice go so, when he went Sad-Eyed Lady, of the, low, in the low and then he's going to go even lower, lands. <laughs> Whoa. That's yeah. His he, now he's just about everything he sings is in that low register. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but back then, I was sort of hoping. I remember the first time I, I heard it. I thought, is he going to make it? Is he going to be able to, to actually get that low? Because and if he doesn't, he do, it doesn't matter because no. he's Bob. Yeah. That's, <laughs> this is this is true. And you know, those records are made with a lot of care. I've listened to the entire uh, session of Like a Rolling Stone, and uh, actually hearing things in it that I'd never heard before. Uh, the piano, I, I never really, you know, you hear Al Cooper's organ and we all love that story of Al, you know, being mm -hmm. there and, you know, trying to sneak on the session. Bob saying, hey, turn that organ up. Mm -hmm. That guy doesn't even play organ. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> he certainly, you know, provided the to that song. <laughs> yeah. But to hear that the piano that the other keyboardist is playing, and I don't, I don't remember his name at the moment, but man, I want to say Paul really Griffin. Good. Is it Paul Griffin? That's what I want to say too. Yeah, we want to say Paul Griffin. <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure Maybe. Paul needs needs the thing, but really a great piano part. Yeah. So yeah, you know, I mean, and those records were made with care. Two, three days developing an idea, getting there it wasn't just okay. Let's go in and bang it out. But also, when you think of him being down in Nashville for Blonde on Blonde, indeed those other albums and those guys it was another world to actually work with guys who were fabulous musicians but came from the nashville tradition that's so dangerous he was so but they open. didn't smooth him out that's the best thing yeah. they actually seemed like they were having fun these are guys that you know they go in and they cut versions of the same song all the time and all of a sudden you have this wild card come in who's also making them keep up with them He's challenging them and they're saying, okay, let's, we're out of our comfort zone. Let's just kind of follow this wild card. And uh, great, a great job. I still think that, I think it's Wayne Moss's part on I Want You, that guitar line. It's just one of the oh, yeah. best pop hooks. You know, it's just fantastic. It's, it's just jaunty, you know, and it's just, it's alive and it's, it's not around for too long, that song. It's pretty brief, but God, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But also no, Charlie McCoy, really... I realized later, only much later, I always thought those guys would, were like at least five or six or maybe even 10 years older than Dylan because they were the studio musicians. And I kind of figured, but they were all the same age. Yeah, Charlie McCoy turned Charlie McCoy the same age, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's Dylan. Well, you know, that's how music is made. And, uh, and I got to say, uh, as, as Bob recast himself in a different persona, you know, Nashville Skyline, he also had a thread of continuity which I kind of like that, you know, he kind of stayed in Nashville and he thought, well, I don't mm -hmm. have to be as out there as I want. I can kind of see if I can accommodate myself to the new situation and still maintain my edge. I'm so glad that he got to make this music before people were as obsessed with categories as they are now. I was reading about the word Americana, which I have a real problem with as a, as a genre, <laughs> even though I like a lot of the music that claims to be Americana. I was reading that it was invented in the mid-1990s 
by a chart that was basically trying to win people back to country music. So they called it this other thing. They called it Americana, which came to just mean, you know, white men with beards, basically. But it was, it, was the, <laughs> it was the edgy country music that you were allowed to like. But thank God Dylan and the band and all of Elliot Landy's lot escaped that conversation. Oh, yeah. you know? I mean, we love to classify things much to our own downfall, really. We're all different. You know, that's why, to me, this current vogue of people defining their sexuality, their race, their everything. With myself, with Patty, we were interested in not defining ourselves mm. like that. Patty didn't want to be, you know, she doesn't consider herself a woman's artist. She considers herself an artist and mm. wants the ability to move between her feminine and her masculine sides. And actually, within the band, I think we need to do that, too, you know, to understand that there are times when you can't be frontal or whatever cliches attached to any one random gender. You have to kind of duck and move to be able to access all the racial shades of music. I mean, look at rock and roll. It's not just a black music that white people picked up on, and it's not just a white music that, you know, I mean, this kind of racial integration has been going on since the 1920s. Charlie Patton, when he would stand on the street corners, would play as many vaudeville songs as he would blues. Bing Crosby kind of took on all of it and uh, put black inflections in a music that, would, you know, it went back and forth and back and forth. And that, to me, is how the music continues to be vibrant. Mm. And as soon as you start saying, well, this is this and this is that, and they have to be separate. Yeah, come on. We're all in this for the same thing, which is to find transcendence. Yeah, music is non-binary. I mean, I, yeah. it interests me that to go back to Elvis again, but, you know, that's all right, Mama and Blue Moon of Kentucky. There is a blues side and there is a bluegrass side. There are black roots in one of those and there are white roots in the other one, and he just, just chucks but them all in But there's also there. Elvis roots. Yeah. And to me, Elvis... Yeah is an extraterrestrial. I don't think you can classify him as being black or white, personally. I mean, maybe his whiteness was able to get him onto the show, but man, he was a mutation. And when you have a mutation like that, that's when you have the birth process of a new music. I start my book in Sun Studios mm -hmm. on July 5th. 1954, which to yeah. me is the manger of when this music was invented. Mm -hmm. uh, as Sam Phillips said, that's a pop song now, but it's not, you know, <laughs> even in his delivery of That's All Right, Mama, it's not a black delivery. It's just like, it's everything, you know, that, and you know, what it really is, because I mentioned him before and he gets zero respect these days, Elvis loved Bing Crosby. Elvis picked up a lot from Bing Crosby. And uh, I like it. We're all mutts and mongrels. And, you know, you start trying to separate this influence from that influence. And it doesn't make any sense. It defeats the purpose of human interaction. And for me, I'm about moving past. You set a boundary. And I believe that's when you got to move past it. Don't apologize. Don't anything. Claim it for your own. Do you ever listen to um, anything like Bing Crosby? 
I wrote a whole book <laughs> called You Call It Madness, The Sensuous Song of the Croon, centered around Bing Crosby, uh, Rudy Valley, and especially this tragic uh, singer named Russ Colombo. And it really helped me understand the transition point of the music as it entered the 1930s. And you could sing in a different way because the microphone had just been invented. I mean, you know, we remember Bing now is kind of grandfatherly and mm. kind of conservative and not that exciting. But if you look at pictures of Bing in 1929, blue eyes, you know, he was quite the romantic figure and quite a wild man. He really had to pull himself back. He was fired from Paul Whiteman's orchestra for uh, indulging too much. Probably that made him a little less... Uh, appealing over the years but really for the 30s and the 40s into the 50s Bing Crosby was probably one of the major icons of American culture in a kind of weirdly relaxed affable way but I, I was mostly interested in Russ Colombo because I heard his story late night on the radio uh, where he was killed by a friend uh, with a dueling pistol when he was 26 years old and uh he was about to marry the actress Carol Lombard, who referred to him as her great love. And they said, you mean after Clark Gable? And she said, no. And then after he was killed under somewhat mysterious circumstances, because his mother was in the hospital with a heart condition, they decided not to tell her. And she was blind. So for the next 10 years, they wrote letters purporting to be from Russ and read them to her, you know, dear mom, I'm in Italy starring in this opera house. I'll be home soon. Hope you're doing well. And I thought, man, that's the weirdest story I ever heard. And if the internet had been invented then, I guess it just started. This was the early 90s. I would have gone on the internet and learned what I needed to know about Russ Colombo and forgotten it. But because I had to go to the library and look at the newspapers from 1934 to see the accounts of his death, I got pulled in and I spent eight years uh, understanding the music of the uh, turn of the 30s. I recommend it. You call it madness. It's a yes. sensuous song of the crew. And I think uh, White Rabbit might be reissuing it in England soon, from what I hear. What did you make of Bob's? Some people say he was crooning on the uh, Sinatra albums. Would you call him crooning? <laughs> I, I don't think of Frank as a crooner, to be perfectly honest, okay. because... To me, crooning accesses the feminine. There's a certain vulnerability in crooning. To me, it's like singing to a woman in her language. And there's a lot, a lot of vulnerability to that. Frank, you know, doesn't feel like a lot of vulnerability. I mean, a great saloon singer, uh, probably the greatest, and of course, uh, another amazing human with uh, breath control that you could die for. I, I remember seeing uh, a YouTube video of him uh, doing, uh, it was a very good year in the studio. One take, of course. And yeah, it's remarkable. But what a character. But I don't feel like he's a crooner. For me, there has to be a bit of fragility about the croon, a bit of uh, submission in a certain way. Speaking of, uh, but going back to Bob, I mean, you did, you toured with him in Australia. And I think you, I know you toured with him in um December 1995 tour. Um, right. Did you notice any vulnerability? What did you notice about spending a bit of quality time with Bob? Or, or did you? 
I didn't. I mean, you know, Bob is really private uh, backstage. When he walks to the stage, if you happen to be in the hallway, you're instructed not to look at him. I don't think I said anything to Bob. I didn't see him afterwards. Uh, I did get to watch him from side stage over the eight shows in Australia. And of course, the shows we did with him in December of 1995 were the first performances of Patty since she came back from uh, Detroit. So that was a very interesting thing. And to see them singing Dark Eyes together is one of the most magical uh, duets I've ever witnessed. It was a beautiful, beautiful togetherness of them on stage. But I can't say I had any sense of Bob off stage. And, you know, to be honest, I don't want to. I don't really like to meet my idols unless I'm working with them or unless we catch each other unawares. But I'm really, I like that sense of uh, artistic distance to see them through their music and their public persona, because otherwise I'm not one to go behind the scenes. But no, we didn't hang out and do shots together. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't somehow think that was the case. But I've seen the, uh, of course, the duet with Bob and Patty doing Dark Eyes. It's on YouTube. You can see it easily. Mm -hmm. But how did it come about? Do you remember? I I think uh, Patty had met Bob in the 70s. He came backstage. (laughs) Actually, on the night we went fully electric, the first public appearance of our drummer, J.D. Dougherty. Uh, And he was hanging out in the West Village at the time, and he came to see us at the Bitter End on Bleecker Street. It was quite an electric moment, actually. All of a sudden, you could feel the atmosphere charged. And after we played, uh, he came backstage and met Patty, and they they were quite friendly there for a while. Uh, I know at one point he invited her to come down and audition for the Rolling Thunder Review, you know, would have taken her away from the band at a critical moment of our development where we were integrating JD and preparing to record horses in uh, a month or two. But they've known each other. And so uh, I'm sure she went back and talked with him a time or two. And there was a suggestion of uh, doing a song together. And uh, Dark Eyes was the result. I wasn't privy to the discussion. I wasn't a fly on the wall. Were you privy to when she went over to uh, sing Hard Rain at the Nobel ceremony? I don't no, suppose I mean, I heard about it. I watched it on TV. I think, I think if she wanted to make a bigger stir, she couldn't have done better than make that mistake because it showed the heart and soul of what we all deal with. Mm. I mean, you know, I, I'm not that good at remembering lyrics these days, especially abstruse ones like that. I mean, she's amazing. But yeah, and you know, the pressure situation and, and uh, an orchestra behind her and everything. And But I thought in the end, it revealed a sense of humanity mm. about who we all are and, you know, what happens. And the fact that she came back from that faux pas and sang the rest of the song so strongly, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's, it's a beautiful example of her onstage resilience and her ability to land on her feet, which I've, you know, seen for over 50 years. I mean, I have to say, being stage left from Patty through the decades, I've never seen her sing a false note ever. I've never seen her dial it in. I've never seen her not try to engage the audience and make each night special for them. This is remarkable. 
I know you uh, you performed just a few months ago, well, back in, in May at the Bob Dylan Center opening. Yes. Uh, and that must have been something. They brought us over to the archive to see its work in progress, and that was pretty great. And we did some great uh, Dylan covers. Uh, Patty and I opened up the show with uh, Boots of Spanish Leather, mm. uh, just me finger-picking and her singing, and we did Wicked Messenger, and... And it was a great occasion, you know. Uh, I'm glad Bob's archives have a home. They seem to be into treating it honorably. If you had one, I'm not sure I'm that interested in what he was carrying in his wallet in 1966, <laughs> but that's just me. <laughs> well, we've heard good things about the um, the museum as a museum. As uh, I think I, somebody was talking about how museums they disagree with the idea of museums. But the, the Dylan Museum seems to be an ever-changing sort of thing. They're really up to keep it keep it. Well, moving. you know, museums mean that something is over. Is dead, um, yeah. you know, But I'll go to the Museum of Natural History to see uh, the dinosaurs. But it's also good to have an archive where people can do research. You might think, oh, man, it's a museum. But 200 years from now, assuming that the Earth lasts that long, it will really be amazing to have all of that stuff preserved in a place where it can be studied by the future. Because in the end, what we do today will influence in some ways that we don't even understand now what will be coming next. When you said that about museums, that a museum means that something is over, it just popped into my head and I, I now understand what it means when he says inside the museum, infinity goes up on trial. Yeah. Exactly, exactly yeah. what you just said. Very, very good. I mean, it's the same thing I, I say about, say, scenes in my book. When they become a scene and they start creating some weird sensibility in the world, you know, it's over. That moment where I stood outside CBGB's thinking about the bands inside, these rogue bands of which Tom Verlaine once said, each band was like an idea. It wasn't punk. It was a sensibility. And I was thinking, you know, this kind of cluster of bands reminds me of that cluster of bands that centered around the Fillmore and Avalon ballrooms. And then a year later, when everybody got their record deals and started kind of filtering out into the world, it had figured itself out. And then it's time for the next generation to start understanding who they need to be. You know, it's... it's uh, it's a completely evolutionary process. And uh, I'm glad to have participated in one firsthand because it helped me to understand what it must have been like in San Francisco in, say, you know, not the summer of love, but the winter before the summer of love, uh, when, you know, there was just a bunch of creative people interacting and they hadn't understood what it is. They hadn't defined who they were. And once it got that definition of hippie, you know, then, then it became less interesting, you know. So catch him while you can. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in Studio One at Lip Sync Studios and on Zencaster. Engineered by Roisin King and produced by Robin Guise. Digital imaging by Finn Guise Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. You fasten all the triggers for the others to fire.
Then you sit back and watch. When the death count gets higher, you hide in your mansion while the young people's blood flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud.